I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. CSL Baring entered into a global license and commercialization agreement with Unicure for the company's experimental hemophilia B gene therapy. The expected one-and-done treatment carries the potential to free people with a genetic bleeding disease from reliance on regular infusions of clotting factor 9, for which they are deficient. We spoke to Steve Pasco, Senior Vice President and Head of Therapeutic Areas and Development Strategy for R&D at CSL, about hemophilia B, how the gene therapy fits into CSL's broader therapeutic offerings, and the encouraging results from the pivotal study. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hey, Daniel. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to to our chat. We're going to talk about hemophilia B, CSL, and its gene therapy to treat the condition. Let's start with hemophilia B. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Well, going from the, the very basics, it's an inherited disease. affects mostly um, men. It's present from birth. And the principal problem is the body lacks one of the proteins, which helps your blood clot when you have a cut yourself or have trauma. And so people experience a, a number of problems with this through life, and, and, they, and they generally need some form of replacement therapy. And what's the long-term effect of hemophilia B on patients with the condition? So if you go, if you go to the untreated diseases we used to see uh, uh, a few decades ago, the developer, principally the main problem is arthritis, because as the joints get traumatized through normal use, they bleed and that bleeding starts inflammation, inflammation, which causes more damage. And then people become highly incapacitated. Uh, The other side of it is they're prone to serious bleeds like strokes, bleed in the brains, as well as uh, uh, bleeds in the stomach. These days with current treatment, those problems have been uh, significantly mitigated, but, but nevertheless, the impact is large. But the way I'd like to think you think about the disease is not just in terms of those measurable endpoints. It's in terms of the impact on the overall quality of life of the individual. Because to maintain good control of the disease, it involves a lot of medicalization, a lot of therapy um, for half of the patients. It's an injection every week or two. And it's it's all about how you're growing up and how you're thinking of yourself and how you live in the world as as much as it is as doctors looking at x-rays of joints. It's 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 chronic disease, lifelong chronic disease. It, it has major impact in many ways that may not be obvious uh, at first glance. Well, talk talk to me about that impact. What is it like to live with the condition? How how much medical attention does it require someone and how life-limiting is the is the disease? Well, I, th- I think if you think of it as a, a lifelong journey, and, and of course, our, our childhood journeys impact not just us, but impact our parents, siblings, and the wider family. So the initial uh, uh, 
diagnoses the disease, which is often made when, when patients are very young, comes as a major shock. It's dealing with a, a child who may well be seen as, as, as sickly. So all that interaction, all that um, uh, experience from very early years of being a patient, being hospitalised, then learning to take injections and being given injections, and then being super cautious about what people are doing has a major impact. And of course, through life, all of that continues. Uh, but then as you accumulate underlying damage, particularly to your joints, you can get more and more incapacity and pain uh, as you move through the journey. Uh, and that passes into adulthood, your relationship, then your family circumstances might change. But the impact on the broader family is still very real. Um, and I think it's the totality of that burden that is, is the key thing um, that we should think about when we're thinking about our uh, patients with the disease. And you talked about replacement therapy. I, I take it in the case of hemophilia B, we're talking about factor nine replacement that's, therapy? That's exactly right. And the thing about hemophilia B, which I didn't talk about, is because it's genetic disease, it's associated with just this one single protein that's missing, this factor nine. And the way we currently treat it is we either give people injections of factor nine when they're at risk or when they've hurt themselves, or more typically for more severe patients, we give them a regular dose of factor nine so they're ready um, if they become injured or to prevent themselves get bleeding. And, and if there is a uh, an injury, does that require treatment? Does that require hospitalization? Uh, that's largely dependent on where the patient is in their treatment journey and the nature of the injury. So, you know, something's relatively trivial for someone who's not taking replacement therapy would mean they would take their shots. Um, as it gets more significant, it may be they need to check their levels, go and have a blood test. And of course, if the damage is more severe or the bleeding is uncontrolled, if it was something, some other type of bleeding, so if they were uh, being injured in an accident or they had bleeding into their stomach, and most definitely if there's some form of intracranial bleeding, that would certainly involve hospitalization. In 2020, CSL announced a global commercialization and license agreement with Unicure for its gene therapy for hemophilia B. What did CSL do this deal and, and how does it fit strategically in what CSL was already doing? Well, I think to answer that, you need to look at where CSR and what are and what their what their what our mission is. And at our heart, we're a rare diseases company. And we've been treating and working with the hemophilia community for, for decades now. So there's a so we, we understand their environment. We have the links. And uh, for us, seeing this as a, an opportunity to expand the potential benefits to patients, as well as it having clear business synergy, it makes an awful lot of sense. We think the next generation um, of, of treatments, a large portion of hemophiliacs, will be treated with gene therapy. Being the first there with it is a, is a tremendous opportunity um, for CSL. But, you know, clearly... It's a great opportunity for the company because it's a great opportunity for patients. And why haemophilia B as opposed to haemophilia A? Well, we have an interest in both and we have a, our own gene therapy group as well as looking at our interactions with external groups. And haemophilia A is an area of interest. This particular product we looked at and the data is so compelling and the timing of it was perfect. So this is the first um, therapy that's come up that, that met our criteria. So we wouldn't differentiate then and say, what's our choice? We'd say this, this is a very robust 
product and, and it fits well for us and for our patient groups. So in terms of the collaboration, what is CSL's role? Well, I think this is becoming what's quite a classical collaboration now. I think Unicure, um, who are the biotech who developed the gene therapy, have uh, been right at the center of taking us through early testing, figuring out some of the technical uh, 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 problems along the way. And as we've come in towards the end of the large phase three study, we're bringing to bear our, ex our expertise in developing a wider spectrum of data gathering, how to work in the external world in terms of collecting the data we need as we go on to reassure um, our, 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 the patients and healthcare providers that, that this really is going to be uh, game-changing therapy. Uh, and then, of course, the commercialization uh, and in terms of getting access to as many patients as we possibly can is what we're bringing to the table. So it's a really nice blend of of, of, of different, uh, of both sides bringing something different to the table to make the sum of the parts greater than than the individual parts. And what does the gene therapy consist of and how is it delivered? So it's, in simple terms, the, the way to think about it is to, to, to make this protein that's missing, you need to get DNA into the cell. And if you inject DNA just into the bloodstream, it just gets chewed up. So what we need is a delivery pack. Uh, and the way to do that is we uh, create an envelope that's borrowed from um, a viral uh, precursor. And this is engineered so that it not only protects the DNA when it's being injected, but it also takes it to where we want it to go. And this viral precursor we used uh, is, is, is designed to go straight to the liver, which is the factory for factor nine. So, so the, the viral precursor, gets to the cells in the liver, delivers the uh, package of the DNA, the precursor then dissipates and goes away and leaves you with your DNA in place. And this DNA then acts like a factory, which will produce the RNA, which then goes on to produce the protein, which then stops people bleeding. So in addition to the vector and the gene itself, is there anything else that's delivered? Yeah, so, so the key part of the, um, along with the gene itself is, the way genes work is you need something we call a promoter to switch that gene on to make it make the protein. And what has been built into Intranidase is what's called a liver-specific promoter. So that is, it's only when it's in the liver that the body itself can switch the machine on to make the protein. So this combination of the promoter and the gene, as well as some blank regions at either end that allow the mechan mechanisms to produce the protein, the RNA, then the protein. All of that comes as a single delivery package, which then exists uh, itself in the cell. And it's probably important to say it doesn't get integrated into your existing DNA, which is, from a safety perspective, uh, a really important thing from our perspective. You recently reported that a pivotal study of the gene therapy met its primary endpoint. Walk us through the study. How big was it? How long did it last? And what were the endpoints? Sure. So we, we dosed 54 patients over a period of time, and these were moderate, severe and severe patients um, who we know from their history needed regular replacement therapy. Um, and they, they were treated and we watched them over the space of 18 months. And the two things we looked at were for were the factor nine levels and more importantly, the impact on bleeding. Uh, and we compared that to how the patients were doing prior to entering the study. 
And firstly, we saw that for 52 of the 54 patients, that they produced um, factor IX levels exactly uh, in the range where which is desirable and we know will be efficacious in, in stopping bleeding. And the other two, we have, there are technical reasons for failure that we can go into. But really, uh, the way we're prescribing the therapy or advocating going forward, it's 100% hit rate. Uh, and those 52 patients, we've seen that at six months, their, their factor nine production didn't fall away with time. There's, the number was slightly smaller, but it was all in keeping with what we'd expect. So we're seeing a very consistent level. And this is in line with our phase two data, where we saw that patients who were treated with a slight variant on the Intranidose product, who've now gone out to four years, we've seen them maintain uh, satisfactory levels. And this is one of the big things with gene therapy, is how long does that initial effect continue for? So that data is hugely encouraging. But what patients will be interested in, and I think all of us will be interested in, is what happens to their bleeding. So compared to what is excellent prophylactic treatment they were getting before the study, we saw in, in, the, in, in the study a 75%, 75% fall in the rate of serious bleeding, so bleeding into the joints or bleeding that needed treatment of some sort, which, which is obviously something we think is, is game-changing and, uh, and we think is, is really, really exciting. And were patients free of needing factor nine replacement? Um, so uh, 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 the exact percentage, uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't got that number to mind, but in the end, we ended up with less than half an event per patient per year in terms of joint bleeding. So you can see there that the, um, that the, uh, the impact was huge. And in terms of the patients who didn't have any need for prophylactic, as opposed to the occasional therapy, none of those 52 patients went back onto prophylactic therapy. And from a safety point of view or any kind of immunological response, was that seen in, in, in the study? Yeah, so, so what, we, what we've seen uh, uh, is that in 20% of subjects, they had uh, a rise in their liver enzyme in the uh, two or three months following administration of the therapy. AOT, yeah, AOT and AST. Um, but those rises were all small. Uh, uh, and they weren't accompanied by other signs of liver dysfunction. And what's critically important is that if those patients were then treated with corticosteroids, none of them went on to have further progression. And we think this is a marker of the immune response to the therapy, as you get with many viruses um, that you get just out in nature. And the, the worry about that is it impacts the ability of our delivery man to get to the liver and therefore to make the protein. And in all of these subjects, we saw that they have very adequate levels of factor IX replacement afterwards. So the transaminase rise didn't prevent this therapy from going on and being highly effective in those patients. And, and that's really crucial. You spoke a moment ago about the durability. Is there any sense of the level of durability regulators want to see or payers want to see? And, and this is intended to be a one-and-done therapy, is there some point at which it's justified its cost if it's worked for five years or whatever? So in terms of the, uh, the regulators, we've had great discussions and we've agreed that 18 months worth of data will, will, will form the basis of submission. I mean, clearly they have to review that and 
approve that, but, but we think it's a very uh, a very strong data package. In terms of the payers, I think that people accept you can only have the data which is as long as you've treated for. And, and I think that it raises some interesting questions about therapies that promise prolonged benefit, how you shape the pricing structure. But our, our, our discussions have certainly been very positive in terms of um, the, the, the way forward and the affordability in the context of rare disease treatment, which, as we know, in haemophilia isn't cheap. You know, it, it's, it's about the net cost over time that uh, everyone's interested in. And we think that the, the health-seeking argument is a very healthy one and, and the, the overall net, net burden is, is, is going to be a decrease, not an increase. Have, have you had discussions with payers about payment schemes and some type of payment over time, or would you expect them to pay up front all at once? So I, I think there's, there's too many answers to that because there are too many payers to, to, be, to be general about it. But I think um, in, in the U.S. on the whole, we've seen the payers be very positive about uh, a, a single payment. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't want to preclude uh, all of those conversations about what possible models might be used. I've seen some numbers on the cost of treating uh, a patient with hemophilia A over a, a one-year period. Um, is it comparable for hemophilia B? Is there some level you can estimate what it costs to care for a patient? Um, I, I, th I think it's, I mean, factoring in just the replacement costs and all the other costs that come with the extra burden of disease um, were not factored in, but, the, but they're different depending on healthcare system. Um, uh, but suffice it to say that the, 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 the costs, as I say, are not trivial um, for replacement therapy. It's, it's, in the, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I've right. seen numbers around 650,000. Is that? I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I would say that's more towards the upper end, but I, I probably wouldn't want to be specific because they say the variation in payers and regions and countries is such it's difficult to put a number on it. Still, I, I would argue there's room there to make a value argument for a, a one-and-done gene therapy? Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think that our, our optimism at the moment, just to reiterate, is that we've seen the benefit uh, being maintained for uh, intranodes in the studies for 18 months with no uh, sign that we're losing effect for the precursor. We've seen it out to four years and a more limited number of patients. So, so we're highly optimistic, of course, that um, we're going to see this being having a meaningful duration, and as I say, the net economic benefit will be will be will be good for everybody. Has there been an opportunity to talk to patients who have been through the therapy or their caregivers and get a sense of how it's altered their their lives? Yeah, for, uh, at the moment, for the patients in the study, we we have limits on how we can contact them directly, quite rightly. But anecdotally, what we've heard back from the investigators, I mean, one comment I had was, or I heard was, uh, I can't believe that so something so simple has changed my life so much. And I think that's probably a T-shirt phrase for the way we see the treatment. Because the one thing we didn't mention is the delivery is just there's no pre-treatment, there's no toxic. Um, effects on the bone marrow. You, you have an injection, just like their month, weekly, or, or, or two weekly therapy, and you go home. You know that, that it's, it's, it really is that simple. So um, the feedback we've had has been incredibly encouraging. This is a viral vector you're using for the yeah, that's right. It's it's, it's an adenovirus associated vectors. It's the AV5, which is just one of the subtypes we talk. So about. I take it the one issue is it wouldn't be reducible. Is that correct? Um, no, we, we don't know that because one of the great things about the product is people who 
have pre-existing immunity to this AAV5 virus, which occurs in nature. We've seen in our program that 40% of subjects have this neutralizing antibody. Um, and those subjects we've been able to dose successfully and they've got uh, excellent therapeutic response. So one of the things that if we get to the stage of seeing uh, the therapy fall away, which we hope for, uh, will not be for many, many years, at that point, we think it will be very reasonable to go ahead and look at redosing. Uh, and, it's, and it's certainly not something we're baking in. That's not going to be possible. So what's the path forward towards an approval? Uh, if everything runs the plan and, you know, one, one should never rely on those things, but, but by the standard timelines, with our accelerated approval, we're looking in the U.S. Uh, towards the end of the year. And are you expecting to manufacture this yourself? Uh, well, it'll be a, combina a combination of working with a, 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 a CMO and, and, and our know-how. And I'm curious, what, what has the discussion with payers been like? How, how have they looked at this? As I say, very positively. I mean, I mean the, 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 the value added and the economics all add up, which tends to have for good payer conversation. I think gene therapy always, you know, because of its, you know, the, the, the relatively few products available, it's, it's always a, a different conversation. But so far, we're really encouraged, actually. Um, and, and I think we're, we're, we're very optimistic we'll get to a good place. And if they have concerns, is it on the issue of durability or is it something else? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they look at the, the entire package and they say we've not heard any consistent pushback on only one specific component. So, uh, as I say, it's relatively early days. Um, the data we will provide to support the package for the payers is generated while the file is being reviewed for a number of technical reasons. Uh, and when all of that comes together, we're in a much firmer position to, uh, to, to, to uh, advance it forward in terms of access and pricing. Steve Pasco, Senior Vice President and Head of Therapeutic Area and Development Strategy for R&D at CSL Baron. Steve, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, Daniel, it was a real pleasure and it was a delight just to talk through um, how we're seeing the product and what it's bringing to our patients. And it's just an exciting journey for the disease. It's an exciting journey for us. And I, and I really appreciate you taking your time out to talk to me. Thanks. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.